and welcome to Best Girl Grip, the podcast that celebrates the women behind the scenes of the British film industry. I'm your host, Nicole Davis. Hello, pod pals. Welcome to episode 55 of Best Girl Grip. We're halfway through my mini lockdown season, and I've been thrilled with the women I've managed to speak to, and I'm very, very excited for the remaining guests I have lined up. This week, I spoke to the brilliant Anna Burtmark. Anna is a sound designer and supervisor who has worked on several acclaimed and award-winning British feature films, including God's Own Country, The Goob, Adult Life Skills, Lilting, You Were Never Really Here, and more recently, Blue Story, as well as episodes of Normal People as a sound effects editor. I should also mention that Anna won the Best Sound Biffa in 2017 for her work on Francis Lee's God's Own Country, and if you haven't seen that film, it's a true marvel, and definitely something worth seeking out. Originally from Sweden, Anna has worked in the UK film industry for 15 years, uh, and been the Vice Chair of the Association of Motion Picture Sound. She's passionate about mentorship and training, so we speak about her her experiences of that and how she's providing that currently to up-and-coming sound professionals. We also talk about her approach to designing sound, what those initial conversations with the director look like, where she gets inspiration, how software has changed over the years, and what motivates her. Personally, I think it's a great chat, and my first with a sound designer, so there was lots uh, for me to learn. If you're a sound designer or interested in it as a career, um, I'm going to flag a couple of things that you might find valuable. Uh, One is a documentary called Making Waves, The Art of Cinematic Sound by Midge Costin, who herself has extensive experience in the sound department. And it's a great introduction to both the history of sound, but also how valuable it is as a storytelling apparatus. I think it's available to rent on most streaming platforms like Amazon, Google Play, but don't quote me on that. Secondly... Next week on Friday the 26th of June, the Sundance Institute and their collab offshoot are hosting a webinar with Alma Harrell, who directed Honey Boy, and Ben Zetlin, who directed Beasts of the Southern Wild, all about sound design and the role it can play and how to make the most of it, uh, even with low budget features. I've been watching uh, quite a few of their talks and they are really, really good. And uh, this sounds like it's going to be, you know, uh, quite a fascinating one. So definitely one to bookmark. I think if you go to collab.sundance.org forward slash learn forward slash online dash events, you should be able to find it. But I'll also link to it in the show notes. And finally, Anna recommended a book that she's currently reading called Women in Audio by Leslie Gaston Bird, and it features almost 100 profiles and stories of women working in various audio fields, including sound for film and TV, so give that a Google. Wicked, Uh, that was quite a long intro, Um, but some good stuff there if you're looking to expand your sound horizons. I really hope you enjoy this interview. I recommend you listen to it and then watch one of the films Anna has worked on and, and see all the wonders that sound is doing for the story. This is episode 55 of Best Girl Grip. start with asking um, my interviewee where they went to university and if you did what did you study? Um, I did a Bachelor of Arts in Music Technology at Rose Bruford College in London. I came over from, I'm from Sweden originally, I came over in 2001 to study that and it was super exciting. I've never been on English soil before I started uni. My only reference I had for England was um, MTV 
and uh, obviously films. So I just expected that London was going to be like, looked like, you know, music videos. And uh, <laughs> it was it wasn't far away from my expectations, but it was, it was slightly different. Yeah, so I went and did music tech because, um, yeah, it was a very practical course. Obviously had a bit of theory, but I wasn't very good in, in school. I didn't have very good grades, but I just played music and uh, was in bands as a teenager and played piano since I was seven and in Sweden. It was so, yeah, and I wanted to work in a music studio. That was my dream, so... So you wanted to take the degree into the music industry or you were, you were, did you know that music and film kind of existed at that time as well? Was that an option open to you as well as working in music? I knew obviously that, yeah, I knew, I was very aware that film music was a thing and that was one of my thoughts that, oh, and that would be ex- exciting. But I really mainly wanted to be a music producer and, and work in, in music studios. I had no idea that sound was a job, sound, film sound was a job. And, uh, you know, that was just, um, I didn't really uh, know much about that until until I was looking for work. And uh, yeah, because once I um, I graduated in 2004, that was kind of a, a big shift in music, the music industry, the, you know, lots of music studios were closing down, recording studios were kind of, yeah, closing down, iTunes was on the rise, lots of record shops were closing. And also the kind of the way that, people were were kind of recording bands were recording themselves you know home studios was on the rise and this technology was really getting more accessible so that was uh, kind of the reason why I kind of gave up on the music music dreams as such but I was basically my journey into into sound was uh, very much I was just looking for any job that was related to what I had studied and I was very lucky to stumble upon an assistant uh, a job opening in a in a small sound company called Paul Davis Sound Design. I kind of started working for him as an assistant. Paul Davis, he's a he's a you know one of the top sounders, high sound designers in the world. Really, he works with uh, Lynn Ramsey. Um, they've been cool. working together since uh, they went to film school together. So, and was that your first like official job in film? And did you kind of did you fall in love with it straight away? Did that feel like a really good fit? Yeah, I, I absolutely fell in love with it. I it was um you know I was very lucky to kind of to to start assisting you know working in a in a small company where we got very very busy very quickly and it was all hands on deck you know after about a few months of me being there I obviously did start from the from the bottom I did tea and coffee took the rubbish out that thing and I was type you know typing out um the handwritten kind of notes from the from the dialogue editors and sound effects editors and then I got to sit in on ADR sessions and watch watch actors work with directors and and the dialogue editors and the recorders and then sitting in on the mixing theatre kind of process as well which was the most amazing thing I mean it was very I think the first couple of times I got to sit in on a mix it was quite emotional and also side note I'm a very much a, you know grew up with watching a lot of science fiction and Star Trek and uh, you know if you ever go into a mixed theatre you know that I think I sat there I was like this is the closest I'm going to get to to go to space you know I wanted to be an astronaut as a kid and uh, you know had to give up on those dreams quickly but it is you know it's all flashy lights and this big screen and then all this sound effects and music being you know crafted in that space it's really it's really amazing so I fell in love with it. And I'm wondering were you learning on the job then like you know in in the mix and in the studios kind of discovering what sound design meant while you were there you hadn't had any training in that particular role yeah I was yeah as I said I was I was really lucky to be surrounded by 
you know, all these um, sound professionals who were so good and, and so passionate. And that passion really rubbed off on me. Thankfully, of being so busy, I had to kind of jump in and help out quite quite early on. And, and um, they, I got trained to do dialogue editing and sound effects editing, um, which I feel very lucky to have, you know, learnt both skills because they are quite different although you know when you when you watch a film you don't really like think about it but um yeah they're quite slightly different quite different specialisms got trained which is um you know today is quite rare to get training um at that level and and you know and in that kind of environment can you speak more to the differences or nuances um in the roles you know between the roles in the sound department and perhaps how sound design emerged as the thing that you were most interested in? Well, it's, um, yeah, well, at the time, I didn't really, it wasn't really that you have a much of a choice when you get the training. It's like, I work for a company and if, you know, I kind of help out with whatever they needed help with. So I was very much on kind of making sure that all the sound editors so that they, um, you know, on a project that everyone's up to date, they got the right picture version and, and, and also helping out with quite a lot of the kind of uh, technical stuff. So what we call conforming, it's quite, it's not technical, but it's, it's, it's a kind of technical process of making sure that you get all the microphones that was recorded on set, you get all them synced up and kind of in line with the picture and the right takes and the right um, kind of, yeah, the right microphones and takes kind of in sync with the picture. That's kind of a quite technical process that, uh, yeah, I had to learn. But yeah, basically you've got sound effects, which is spot sound effects, which are doors, cars, explosions, all those things which are connected, sounds that are connected to an action that you see on screen. And then you've got all the atmospheres. So you've got birdsong, you've got wind, all the things that happen around you and also sometimes off screen. So you've got all, obviously, the literal sounds and you've got the sometimes the non-literal sounds, which is the more abstract, more subjective, expressionistic, you know, or more kind of um, a lot more emotional, sometimes borderline with music. Yeah, those kind of sound effects. And then you've got Foley, which is a whole different specialism. Um, so I'm not a Foley artist. I've done some Foley for short films and stuff, but I know, you know, it's it's that huge Foley team that you kind of work with that record all the sounds which are connected to to the body or the interactions. If you see a character, you know, the footsteps, the clothes moves, if they're writing with a pen, if they are pouring some water or all these sounds that's all foley and also sometimes obviously if you do any genre film or any science fiction that kind of links in with that so there's a lot of storytelling you know involved with with that as well so yeah and then the dialogue which is basically well in short it's like cleaning up all the location sound you know that was recorded by the location sound recording team um also called production sound mixer so and that's that job is very much about protecting the the, the performance of the of the actors because really making sure that their performance and that the dialogue is is um kind of retained as much of the original kind of performance as possible that were recorded on set so you clean that up and if you need to you have to record occasionally extra lines uh what we call it adr that stands for additional dialogue replacement so you do that in the studio yeah so it's a it's very very collaborative um, and also you work with the picture editor as well and the picture editorial team. Yeah, so it's a it's a huge department. <laughs> and um, within that department, most people specialize in either dialogue editing or sound effects editing or Foley or re-recording mixing, which is when you with the engineer who sits and mixes, balancing all these elements together in, a, in the mix theater. 
And how long did you stay with that company? Because presumably that was in-house. So at some point, did you choose to leave to go freelance or how did that work? Yeah, I think it was very much in conjunction with the the recession in 2007, 2008. It affected the film industry quite quite a lot. And at the time, just before that, there were loads of, you know, smaller um, independent facilities and post-production sound companies. And after that recession, obviously, a lot of the, the funding from America kind of disappeared. So money kind of disappeared for a while. So, um, yeah, it affected a lot. Most after, since after that point, most people in sound are work freelance. Yeah, so I went freelance from that point And then that was, uh, yeah, that whole different kind of way of working and a whole way of yeah, the, it's a, freelancing is very much a lifestyle. Sometimes it's a choice, sometimes it isn't. But um, yeah, it comes with this whole host of different challenges of how to get work, how to negotiate, how to charge. Yeah, we'll, we'll come on to that because I do want to talk a bit about how you get work. And, and I know you have an agent, so we'll, we'll move on to that. But also I want to know, um, were you a fully fledged sound designer at the point that you left? Uh, or what was your first project You know, where you had that credit and what was that like? Yeah, so by the time I went freelance, I had quite a few credits as sound, as both dialogue editor and sound effects editor. So I felt quite confident in, in I, I felt like I learned the craft and um, I was confident in both those roles. Uh, yeah, so uh, I was, at that point, I basically had my CV and I went around trying to get, get freelance work and it was very tough building and I realized it took me quite, quite a few years to actually figure out how to freelance properly. And obviously at that time, we there wasn't the support you know today you, you can't really compare that much because today you know although there are fewer opportunities to to get trained in-house I think there are so much so many free resources and uh, lots of like today especially you know the past couple of months or three months there's all these amazing webinars we I wish you know if I just looking back it's like oh I wish I had those resources back then it probably would have been a lot easier but um, it's easy to, obviously, you know, have hindsight. Um, and were you working other jobs at the time or were you able to make a living, you know, solely from working in sound? It was tricky. Yeah, I did. I was lucky to do that. I did, yeah, have a few other kind of part-time jobs here and there, freelance jobs. So I did a bit of uh, localization work for computer companies because uh, I'm obviously using my, my skill as, you know, I can speak Swedish. So I did of helping some com- computer game companies out with localization testing for, for Swedish English translation uh, for a while at a side on the side. But uh, it was very much going out, you know, getting in touch with up-and-coming directors and producers who were just graduated from film school or who were uh, kind of had their films on in film festivals so I found all these you know people and offered to do the sound for their film and I think because I was kind of struggling to get good quality I guess high-end work that I've been used to doing in-house um, I decided that why well, I have probably have to start supervising which was something I always wanted to you know dreamt of doing because it meant meant that you had that relationship with the director and you had you know the film was very much you was responsible for creating this this uh, vision that was for me was super exciting because it meant like obviously I had more control and it was a bit more up to me of creating this you know the sound design for the film which was you know, was out my was my ultimate goal. So I, I kind of, I think I just kind of threw myself into that quite early on when I started freelancing. Because I realised, yeah, I just have to do that. Um, and no one's going to give me those those jobs. I have to go out and really hustle for it. 
And did you have a mentor or anyone that you could like look to for support or that whose career you wanted to emulate? Um, I hadn't worked with that many other sound designers and sound supervisors before going freelance. I had a kind of limited, limited reference. I obviously Paul Davis was was my mentor and he was my mentor for many years. Uh, great support. But apart from that, yeah, I didn't really know many others. But I had other mentors which weren't in related to to sound as such. Um, I won a mentorship with a woman called Dawn Airy, who at the time was still is one of the biggest kind of most powerful women in, in media. She was at the time head of Channel 5 and now she's CEO of Getty Images. And it was, uh, it was she's incredible. And she gave me a great perspective of what it's like to be kind of a woman in a leadership role and in a really good position. And she had a, you know, she was a big influence on me and, and a great help. We had a lot of great chats over cups of tea. Particularly, I love the idea that it doesn't have to be from someone from your field, that actually there's a lot to learn from you know people in other roles and from the wider industry you know it's you know in a way you would be the expert on sound and 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 what you would have to gain from mentorship would be something that you haven't been exposed to before a woman in in a senior position of any kind of media role and and this really to to have that as a role model i think is is hugely 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 helpful it was for me anyway Mm. I can imagine. And I'd love to do a deep dive into, you know, the nitty gritty of what the role entails, because it is something that I'm, I'm really fascinated by, but don't know a lot about. Um, so, I mean, at what, at what point do you come on board the project? Um, and where are you beginning with figuring out what the director needs and how you're going to um, deliver that? Well, when I'm a, um, when my role in a job, on a film is the, what I call the sound supervisor or designer, uh, basically head of the sound department, um, ideally I'd come on board before the shoot starts. So I usually receive a script to read and share my thoughts with the director on which direction I think the sound could go in. And then kind of we have that conversation and I very much have always have to think about the audience and think about how sound design can really help the story. That's kind of the starting point. And what do those conversations even look like? Because, you know, I know with like sort of production or costume design, it's very easy to sort of have a visual mood board or a lookbook and say, you know, these are the materials, these are the fabrics. Are you coming in with sort of samples or how how are you guiding that conversation to say this is this is what it could sound like? Yeah, the years <laughs> it took me a while to, to figure that one out, because, again, you know, with things like costume and visual effects and a lot, most other departments in a film, it's very visual, like sound, it's it's tricky because it's invisible because it's not a visual medium we and humans are very visually kind of led kind of creatures we, we you know because of that we got more words to describe things that we see obviously sound we don't have as many words to describe sounds so it's really hard to talk about but what I kind of my starting point is also ask the director rather than asking them what sounds do you want sometimes directors have lots of you know, very clear ideas of what, it, what they want the film to sound like or their references and things like that sometimes it's more of a we kind of have to explore it together so my starting point is always like ask them what do you what do you want the audience to feel and then take it from there and that I think that to start the conversation about emotional the emotional journey and key scenes films I mean every film is different and very much you know changes with depending on the genre and the rest yeah, starting the, the conversation about sound through from that starting point of emotion, I've discovered it works quite well. And then once the kind of the film has been shot and the picture editing process starts, I usually ask for kind of a rough edit of some key scenes or some impo- important moments that are quite like the big climax moment, or if there's anything in the film that needs to be quite, from the sound point of view, quite abstract or subjective from the character's point of view. Um, I kind of ask for a, you know the very first versions of those scenes, and then I kind of 
do sound sketches of those scenes and then send that back to the picture editors and then the director and the editor can sit there and kind of use use those sounds in there and you'll use those kind of the mix that I've done so use that sketch in the film very early on and obviously then I do really tweaks from there on so you start that kind of yeah that process going back and forth and I think it's a really important especially if you if you work if it's a film that can really needs these kind of uh, not every film needs abstract sound design but for films that are looking uh, looking for that and, and genre films I think getting those sound ideas in early on to make them really part of the architecture of the film makes a huge difference because it means you've got time to sit and reflect on it and it's much it's, it's usually much better for it and where are you keeping all your sounds you know like do you have a catalogue a database or you know what does that look like do you have something that you can draw on or are you always creating something from scratch depending on what project you're working on um yeah I've got a huge huge sound library <laughs> I try to keep it more like quality rather than quantity it's very easy to just fill it up with noises that I kind of and then uh yeah <laughs> I've got a lot of strange noises in my library but uh yeah it's uh, it's a kind of a big it's a mix of you know this or what we call the standard sound library so not having got all of the standard sound libraries but there's like the bbc sound library there's a couple of one called hollywood edge and one called, called sound ideas which are American, and then we got um, apart from BBC Sound Library, another European-based sound library is called a Digifect. So these are like the old school four big ones, which have like thousands of sounds in them, and and uh, most sound editors have uh, not all of these, but a big part of these kind of big libraries. And I've got like a little software which is uh, called um, Soundminer, which is basically like a search engine for my library. So with all the metadata and stuff like that. So I have to always be mindful. So if I search for, for example, Robin, you know the bird it, you know the american robin is sounds very it's a very different type of animal than than the still a bird but from there from the you know the european robin so yeah little things like that and but anyway it's um yeah i'm, I'm always adding to it and i always uh, on every film especially if i'm on board kind of before the shoot i always try and record a library especially for the film so make sure that every film i worked on i work on sounds you know sounds unique and I really enjoy that and I go on the location I record like some ambiences depending on the film again or some specific sounds that are very important for the film that will be tricky for us to kind of try and source once that we left when we, we don't have access to the filming locations. I'd love to expand on that talking about two projects that I um, particularly love that you've worked on um, that are quite different. One, God's Own Country, Francis Lee's film, um, which has quite a naturalistic sound palette, you know, it's and it's set outside and in Yorkshire. And then Lynn Ramsey's You're Never Really Here, which to me has a, a very heightened, sort of more stylized sound palette. Feel free to disagree if that's not the case. But talk me through your approaches to those, you know, two quite different types of films. Yeah, there are quite different film although still very heavy on I mean sound design concepts oh. on you were never really here I was I was part of Paul Davis team and also something about Paul Davis I have to mention is he's one of the few uh, sound supervisors out there who who are very adamant that he has a gender balanced um, team so that's something I have to mention because on on you on Lynn Ramsey's film um, he, he really he all of us in the sound editorial team were women so that was really cool so on that film I only really did the spot effects which meant I did you know the cars guns a bit of punches doors those those, those sounds um, and obviously Paul and Lynn they've worked together since, um, since film school they have developed a very unique style of you know sound design yeah 
so I was just really going by Paul's Paul's notes that he shared and uh, preparing lots of options. They would make sure there was lots of options for for the cars and doors and the rest. So they had that material to try out in the mix when they were kind of mixing it all together. So it, I was less involved on that film air than Gonzo Country, for example. So Gonzo Country, my job was to design and create the sound world for the film. Um, obviously, with the help of um, the, the sound team on that. So and Francis, he wanted the environment to feel very real so his note for me was that I want it to be cold um hard dirty lonely you know it needs to f- feel like we're there it has to be real however you know so at the same time we wanted the wind to be wind sounds to be like an, an additional character so very much like a greek chorus which means like it's kind of exp- the the wind very much is expressing and commenting on what's going on in the film you know so it's expressing what the characters are feeling but they can't say it's a very kind of subtle kind of sound concept but i know that's something that's i think that lots of people kind of did comment on that they felt like you know there's something special about it which was really cool i went on on the set and i recorded no not obviously treading on the toes I wasn't near the shoot the actual shoot but uh you know walking around in the environment where they had shot the film on the moors and near the farm I recorded vehicles and animals and uh, the wind and also some birds like the northern lapwing which is quite a rare bird which Francis wanted um was really specific about because it's quite local so he wanted the northern lapwing sound to be on very specific points in the film but it's very naturalistic but it's totally considered like designed and layered building you know the tension is building it's dropping there's tension of release it's very physical and I think there's just it just lent that kind of approach just really it's a film that really lends itself to that sound it was it's I think it was very much it was very much planned from the start there's very little dialogue very little score so the sound design have to step in and and kind of effectively like score the film with sound effects which is kind of one of my favorite ways of working really because obviously I get to go all out great great fun yeah so sometimes it's realistic sometimes it's expressionistic and sometimes balance between the two so yeah but every sound you hear in, in, in film in that film as well every film is there for a reason and do you have a preference for when a director has a quite a specific vision of what they want you know like with Francis saying I want the northern lapwing does that make your job like slightly easier because you know what you're going after or does it give you more freedom when say a director is sort of unsure what they want and you're able to kind of give them options and experiment a bit more you know a bit of both I mean I, I love it when when a director's got like a note like that which is I love it because it goes like yeah you've you know it means that they've thought about that you know that means that they've thought about sound and if they are aware that sound can play a big part of the storytelling I love that and but in the same time you know it's it's very rare that I that I, I don't think I worked with a director who had you know ev- who knew exactly what they wanted at every point in the film so it's very much a, a you know collaboration and then I always like to I always see it as that you know we're going on the journey of you know exploring you know together of of what we can do and I love actually also sometimes kind of showing you know sometimes directors not sure about you know a certain scene or they know that you want to achieve a certain kind of a feeling but not sure maybe how to get there so that's kind of quite fun when we sit together and kind of explore what we what can I like you know showing different ideas and 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 you mentioned that you went to the set for God's Own Country. Is that the case with all films or, you know, is it an even split between field recording and working in a studio? Or again, it kind of depends on what the project requires. I spent about one week. I mean, if, I'm, if I get on board before, I spent about 
one week kind of recording and then editing what I recorded. It takes a long, probably the same time <laughs> editing, going through it and file naming and, and organizing it as it takes to actually record it. So it's about maybe 10% of the time, roughly, I think, where I, that I kind of 10% of that, but actually I'm out recording stuff and then the rest of the time I'm in, in the studio and then, you know, maybe a th- quarter of the time I'm in the mixing theatre at the end, you know, so and the process. So, um, yeah, so most of my time indoors <laughs> in the studio. Yeah. And is that quite lonely? It sort of just occurred to me, are you by yourself doing that? <laughs> yeah, no, not in, a, not in a bad way. Yeah, it's just, uh, it is very, because it's, it's a noisy job. I mean, I've got, I'm surrounded by speakers in my room. So it's not like, unfortunately, I can't do a desk share very easily. I need my own room. So um, I did work, I had, a, I worked for my spare room uh, in my flat for, for a couple of years. And then, I mean, you know, when I first moved to, I mean, I live in Brighton at the moment. So I lived about 10 years. So that's kind of very much a, a conscious decision to have to move out of London to afford to have a spare room so I could do my work from there, really. When I'm on, when I'm on a project, it's very, you know, it's very, it's very collaborative and I'm still on the phone sometimes daily to my dialogue team and my dialogue supervisor and post-production supervisor and, and things like that. So, um, yeah, it's a lot of uh, chatting as well. So, but I, I do really, uh, it's really nice to be able to go away and focus and, you know, just, just create what I've got, what, my first, what comes to me first in the instinctive kind of level and then invite the director in um, and then after my, my first pass as I call my first version of everything from obviously taking their notes from the spotting session into account and and then sitting down for a day and just sit there and listen together and and then I you know you know we can either see changes after that and then it's that having that balance which is a really I really appreciate off the back of what you just said there, I'm just interested to know when when you show a director your first sort of pass on something and, you know, if, if ever they, they don't like something or they want to change, do you ever fight for something that you're like, no, this is right? Or, you know, how does how does that conversation work when you're sort of negotiating what you think sounds better versus perhaps what they want? It's the director's film. It's their, it's their baby. I mean, I'm only here to find the right sound and putting in the right place you know and uh, basically that's my job so I work for them so it's very rarely that I would I think argue for for I mean um I mean I guess it's that kind of having that trust and going like if they're not sure and they feel like they can defer to me it's like Anna well you know that's the conversation that is very much that collaborative kind of process that 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 I usually you know almost always have which is great new sound or these really specific sounds which are going to be important stylistically and then once we lock picture and then we have what we call a spotting session so we sit together and we go through the film together it's usually me dialogue supervisor editor and director and we kind of watch the film together and we talk about the you know the ideas and what the director ideas that director has in mind and then I usually go away make my first version of it which is a mix between my first instinct and what I think I think might work and the director's notes if there are any specific um, notes and, and kind of direction from from them and then I invite them in and we kind of sit together have the first review which is sometimes tricky because directors I mean at that point in the process there is so much else going on for the director you know for, from their point of view they're like oh my god I'm doing the grading and I'm doing this and 
and the music and all that. So I have to kind of sometimes fight to go and it's like, no, come, you have, it's really important that we just sit together and listen. It's, you know, because usually time is ticking. After that, I do uh, my second pass and then I usually have one more review just before we go into the mix, really. It was, you know, just before I sent, send everything off to the, to the mixer for the pre-mix, which is the technical kind of process. So by then I usually have the foley i have the maybe first pass of the dialogue edit so it's much cleaner it's it's beautiful and then occasionally maybe the adr as well is in there may you know it all depends on the schedule and then i kind of sit down and, and you sit and listen through it again and then it's like at that point i kind of not not that i do all those notes in that on that day but i, I make sure that all the kind of directors kind of thoughts and notes uh, from that session I had time to kind of tweak before setting it off to the to the mixer so it makes me sure that I, what I call like a pre-pre-mix so um, I make sure that I've, the right sound is in the right place and the director's familiar with it have heard it you know are happy with it pretty much because once we step into the mix together final mix on on a kind of a, the average low media low media budget film um, you have one week to to in the mix to sit together and finish it and then at that point we've got obviously the score and everything else. So and it's kind of usually the first time the director will hear their film in a big room, in a you know, in a mixing theatre, which is the kind of environment where you know if you're aiming for the cinema, it's the it's the, it's the environment where the where the audience will will experience your film. So it's um yeah, and it's going to sound different in there because we're surrounded by speakers. You, yeah, it's a very physical experience and it's a huge screen. So, you know, it takes maybe some time for them to kind of get used to hearing it, hearing their film in there. So it's uh, one of my favourite, you know, times in the process when you sit together and you work, you, you shape this film together of what it's going to sound like. It struck me as interesting that you talk there about sort of creating new soundscapes um, and I'm wondering where you get inspiration from and also do you have like a routine when you're, do you know, do you go and sit in a particular room, do you have a notebook, like what does that process look like for you when you're figuring that out? When I, yeah, I guess it comes, most of the time, it comes from reading the script for the first time and I just print it out on paper, actually, that's my process, and I sit and, and with a pen, pencil, because I changed my mind. And then I just sit and read through and I just jot down ideas as I read. And it's usually those, the very first ideas are sometimes the best ones or the ones that I stick with. And then, you know, it's all, all you know, and then I present those ideas on my first pass to the director and see what, see what they reckon. And then you take it from there, really. So, I mean, it's all, sometimes it can take time to come up with something that works um yeah and sometimes I mean occasionally it's not on you if it's something that's really specific which that's yeah it's just something that's usually it's the abstract stuff this is this is, this is stuff that is is subjective and non-literal and the director's like oh, I want this but I'm not sure what it is but you know I you need to be convey this emotion it's like it's not unusual for those notes or those kind of ideas to I do maybe 10 15 versions and also, I'm wondering how the software might have changed since you first got into the job. Um, and, you know, has it advanced dramatically? Are you are you constantly having to kind of like learn new, yeah, new pieces of kit? Uh, when I thought that, it actually hasn't changed at all, I thought. And then, hold on a minute, I remember. Yeah, no, because um, <laughs> I started in the industry, I think I got my first job in 2004. And by that time, I mean, people had used computers for a while, <laughs> but uh, it, I mean, it hadn't been that long since uh, we, sh- we shifted to, to work on software. 
Um, they used to be kind of hard, it used to be all hardware based, very specific, very expensive hardware um, that people used to work with. Yeah, when I first started, I mean, we recorded sound, sound, location sound was recorded on DAT tapes, which were tiny. And then what I mentioned earlier, like the conform process, so the, the process where you know that you tell the tell the computer to to uh, basically right here's this this take the scene go and get the you know find the 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 sounds from that day from that take sync it up to the picture you know that's process is what we call conforming and it's very much a software based thing very quick these days um, but that used to take 2 days to do for a you know a one episode like 45 minute episode and today it takes probably less than a, i mean minutes and that's changed. So it used to be those kind of things took time. Those technical things that um, were still being worked out at the time, I think, when digital came in. And then obviously computers, the capacity of computers have just changed so dramatically. I mean, when I went to uni, I think we had hard drives, uh, 20 gigabytes of a hard drive. That was a big deal. And, uh, you know, it's like, yeah, uh, those things. But I think also what has changed a lot is just the way we work, that it's possible. I mean, when I started freelancing, it was still quite unusual. You couldn't really, you had to go into town with a hard drive. You couldn't email files. You couldn't, WeTransfer didn't exist. YouTube didn't exist. And internet speeds weren't very good. So that kind of part of it. So, I mean, again, in the end of the day, I think, uh, yeah, the way, you know, ideas come and, and things like that hasn't changed, I think, at all. Um, it's still very much, it's just uh, the speed of which we can do things. <laughs> yeah, it's almost like the analogue thinking process behind it is exactly, yeah, as you say, exactly the same. It's just the way that you apply it is differently. I'm also wondering if you consider yourself to have an aesthetic or a style, you know, is there something that you think differentiates the way that you do sound? I don't think so. Not that I'm conscious of. I guess just I don't want to look at, you know, what I've been... I don't think I've been, what you think, kind of typecast as a sound designer. But I tend to get, I tend to get, you know, work on films where there's a lot of wind and it's very gloomy. <laughs> I think I've just been, uh, I've been very lucky to work on on films where that really lend themselves to sound design where there's a, there's again as i said before like maybe little dialogue and little score where yeah i can i can create something that is quite sound design kind of heavy in a way you know i don't think i've got a style as such but no i just um i guess i just as I think in most sound design would say, I mean, we just love love films that work on films that allow for that exploration and to push the boundaries and anything that give you know space for the sound to be a part tell you know to be a big part of the storytelling. Also, kind of convey parts of the story that the camera can't show, um, and also you know to give give the audience kind of insight into what's going on in the characters' heads. The sound very much can it's very powerful in showing you know. The, the emotional point of view of characters proximity you can zoom in and even if the picture isn't zoomed in as such you know close up you can do close up just with the sound but it has to be thought of early on in the script in the script writing stage to be to be the most effective and does it ever frustrate you that it's it's quite an invisible role on film or do you consider that you know that you've done your job well if it's invisible because it it services you know the picture in that way you know it doesn't draw attention to itself and in a way that's what makes it better yeah I mean yes and no I think it's like that's the funny thing is I think yeah like every I'm sure everyone who works in film is gonna say oh it's like 
you know, it's it's you, people only notice it really if it's wrong, <laughs> and go, oh, it's wrong. It's like yeah, but when it's right, you know, it has to be pretty good all of the time, so you don't think about it. You just get, you know, you just nothing that distracts from from the immersiveness of really kind of just yeah, immersing the audience in the story and just uh, believing everything because it is. I mean, all the sounds that you all the sounds on the in a film show, TV, obviously film or TV show, ex- apart from the dialogue, is put it's added afterwards and I that's why I'm a huge fan when I whenever I kind of do talks or talk to directors I mean especially directors I think or you know up and coming directors about talk about sound and how what it can do I show before and after you know before before, the same scene but before we've done any sound to it and after you know before we've gone through the present after and also every step on the on the way just play a scene but you just hear the foley or you just hear the the sound effects without the dialogue and vice versa and they go oh but you know wow it was like yeah <laughs> you know just press mute and just see what we do you know <laughs> and i'm wondering um if you think there's any skills that make you a good sound designer or that you think sound designers should have well i had a big think about that and actually really really good question because i yeah i had to have a long think about because it. it's kind of list being good at it sounds you know obvious but it's like being good at listening and obviously, but being good at also like and, and having a good imagination because you have to really imagine the sound before you before you add it. So, yeah, whenever I read scripts, I mean, it took me, you know, it's taken me years to to get better at it. But when you read a script, I can like hear it and I can really, you know, it's those things kind of filling in those gaps and being able to imagine what you what, what you want it to kind of sound like when you when you watch obviously the first cut and when you read a script having a musical background really helps because I think it's very much linked into that and also the technical skills I in my experience is kind of we're all so tech tech literate these days I think most people if you've done a you know you know done some kind of linear editing tool like iMovie or something you know you're familiar with the logic of of of, of sound editing and then just practice you know learning what fits and the language that you know the kind of the language of sound effects and and when we call what we call it uh, it has to what i was saying well it, it has to stick to the picture you know a good sound sticks to the picture and a bad sound doesn't i mean what does stick to the picture mean it's that kind of gut feeling you go you go always oh, just fits which is a really abstract kind of way of to put it but that's something what takes practice and you need feedback there's a feedback you need someone to give you feedback on that but it's something like imagination and knowing the tools to um, create what you hear in your head really and then a great great way of learning that is to really copy existing film scenes that you that we know and then you know stripping the sound and and creating it yourselves yeah learning how how do I make that sound why do they pick that sound how is that sound kind of created you know and there's a lot of great tutorials online about how to how to build those sounds and it's layering and even a simple thing like yeah it's kind of learning that layering process of which sounds to put together to create this sound and is that something you'd recommend future generations you know if they're looking to get into sound design do you know practice at home or or create their own sound mixes at home you know is that something that is quite sort of easy to do yeah i'd say just record just setting yourself that challenge of yeah, especially animation, because animation is mostly foley. So if you, you know, and that's animation, one of the hardest things to do. And and so if you know, take a scene from a Pixar film and then take your recorder, I mean, there's a lot of quite cheap portable recorders these days and just rec- make, create, recreate the sound for that scene and have fun with it. 
And obviously, the next step, obviously, is, is obviously when you, if you want to work professionally and getting into that, you're learning more about how the different departments work, not just the sound departments, but the different film departments and the industry standards are. And obviously, learning Pro Tools. Pro Tools is industry standard software that we use. And I always think that if you're not, you know, obviously, you can learn sound editing using lots of other tools. But if you want to learn, you know, be sure, make sure that you can collaborate with others. And if you want to work professionally in teams, Pro Tools is, is um, currently still the industry standard software to, to learn. And what keeps you motivated or, um, you know, excited to continue in this career? I think it's um, knowing that <laughs> there are so many stories that we haven't seen yet. And there's so many really exciting storytellers that we you know that we're yet to to hear from and and uh, see their work and I think that's really exciting yeah and I would love to you know, provide more training to the next generation of, of sound designers but yeah I think it's something that I think uh, screens uh, screen skills are working at the moment to to set up more kind of funding so we can take on freelance um, freelance assistants and, and train them up because obviously that's how how I learned and how most other sound designers learned the, learned the craft you need to sit physically with with someone and, and shadow people as well and just sit in and, and um, see and watch people watch and, and hear people work I think an increased demand for really diverse stories I think they're going to be a demand for more diverse crews as well which is quite exciting you mentioned there that you've worked on a variety of projects um, and I'm wondering if there's anything that stands out to you as being, you know, a particular favourite or something that you're particularly proud of having worked on. But what I love about, I think, that when the films I've worked on, I love it when I've worked on a film that have a really, you know, particular, really kind of positive and unique and progressive message, like, and that gain a lot of attention with, with audiences and that kind of, that, that kind of can make a difference to people's lives however you know however small that's 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 incredible when that happens and you can never you never can tell before it's out there how it's gonna do that's the exciting part as well that you know you you say yeah oh, I really hope that people will watch this I really hope that this film is gonna get attention and be get loved and find its audience and when it does it exceeds your expectations it's um yeah and I think that you know good stories have really have the power to you know, give people hope and, you know, change people's perceptions and perspectives and how they see themselves. And I think it's really important. I, I find, the, you know, the longer I've worked in this industry and how the more I kind of occasionally touch wood, maybe get to choose what projects I work on. Though, you know, it's not always we're that lucky, but I think it's really important to keep pick, pick projects that have stories with meaning. Is there something that you find particularly hard about the job? You know, what, what is it that you find is the biggest challenge? I think it's organised. It's beating the clock. Because <laughs> um, sometimes you feel like you play this kind of, oh, we've only got X amount of days left. And that's always the biggest challenge, I think. Meeting the expectation. I mean, expecting expectations you set yourself, but and making sure that we can, we got everything we need and we got the time we need. It occurred to me that could also be the fault of the digital revolution, though, in that, you know, things have been sped up and therefore the expectation has moved along with it for things to be delivered quicker. Definitely. It's like, oh, you can do that in a day. Or it's like, oh, you know, you say, oh, that, that's going to take a bit longer because of this. And they're like, oh, but someone else could do it much quicker. I was like, well, that's good then. But, you know, that's not, <laughs> that doesn't mean, they can, you know, it's still... We're still at a stage where a lot of, because it's a craft, you know, we still, it's still a digital craft. So like, we still have to be a human pressing the buttons, you know, <laughs> telling the computer what to do. Occasionally things 
it can be really quick but yeah we still have to you know make listen through things and make sure that everything's you know human error uh, but yeah having healthy boundaries and going like oh when I feel like oh I'm sure I will take like a couple of days and you're like no add another day it's probably gonna you know just in case <laughs> on that topic is there anything else that you consider to be like the biggest learning curve of your career or yeah just something that you, you sort of maybe wish that you'd learn earlier <laughs> I think if I had to go back and tell my younger self something, which I know now, I think it would be like, just chill out and also uh, (laughs) take it easier. And also um, to maybe actually ask for help more. I think not be afraid of reaching out to people a bit more and and also finding someone people to collaborate with. I think, although I feel like I had to learn a lot of things on the job, which now, I mean, that's part of why I'm, in collaboration with NFTS, I'm setting up a one-day course for sound supervisors, which uh, kind of, uh, yeah, I think it's, uh, you can register now, a, a bit of a guide or a toolkit, an introduction to to what the job entails, because I had, you know, I've only kind of, I've only kind of watched people do the job before I kind of decided, yeah, I can give this a go. And it took me for years to figure it out properly, but as I obviously know a lot of supervisors and when it comes to like, you know, looking after the team and, you know, the, the leader of the, the, the head of the department is, is a lot of supervisors do it in conjunction with, you know, they, they do it, you know, do it together with someone else, your co-supervisor. And I think that's something which is, you know, really, you know, if I wish I would have known that you could do that earlier on, I probably would have done that, but finding someone to do it together with. And at what stage in your career did you get an agent? And is that something that just sort of happened or were you pursuing that? Yeah, I was um, really lucky to be approached by um, Anna Heard at United Agents uh, following when I, after just after why I won the Biffa for the sound for for God's Country. I've been, I mean, for years before that, I've been emailing agent for years, and um, I I knew that agents just didn't take on sound designers or sound professionals for film and TV. It was it's so unusual. It's much more common um, in theatre. But I knew I met a couple of agents before and had chats with them and again get, they've given me quite good advice and stuff uh, before but they said oh but we don't take on sound designers what's what had been the message i'd heard for years but um but yeah once i won the uh, the biffa um and i heard got in touch and um yeah and and suggested we you know get see give it a go and see what i see how we how we do and and um but no it's, it's been incredible it really helpful but having an agent doesn't automatically mean that you get more work, uh, though I still get most of my work from my, my network of contacts that I've been building up you know, over the years. Uh, my agent helps me um, to negotiate my fee and the terms of, of my work. And I only do the, um, she only really looks after the jobs I do as the head of the department. And she also helps me get paid on time. So it feels like you're cloning a slightly small, small part of your brain, which otherwise as a freelancer, you know, it's, it can be a, quite a lot of work. So I'm very super, super grateful for to have her. Um, I really hope that more agents decide to take on more sound, sound people. Um, and I'm interested there that you said, yeah, perhaps the majority of your work comes from that network. Is it very much a sort of word of mouth kind of business? Definitely. That was, I think, one of the best bits of advice I got early on in my career for my mentors. I think my mentor, when I met the one the first time, I was just like, well, you just got to network. Next 10 years, network, network, network. And it's one of the, obviously a bit of a cliche. Everyone says that. But, um, and I was quite terrified at first because I'm quite, you know, naturally quite introverted. And <laughs> so I had to force myself to really get, get, you know, comfortable with talking to people I didn't know very well and to know how to talk about myself and what I did. Um, that was a that was a big learning curve, and I kind of think I joined some kind of 
uh, a local public speaking club you know that was quite cheap and that I mean it sounds it sounds silly but it was huge help for me so that thing of building a network getting finding getting in touch with up and coming producers and directors being able to like talk about sound and, and what it can do and and talking about you know film and and building relationships and keeping in touch with people over time it's a huge part of of freelancing especially when you start out if you find those recent kind of film 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 school graduates and, and the rest and you make a make the first short film or a couple of virtual films and then you just you know hopefully you can, they're going to take you with you know take you with them as they get more and more work so I think it's uh, actually really interesting because at the moment I'm working on a on a BBC um, four-part series and the director of that was someone that I did a short film for I think eight years ago it's learning to play the long game isn't it sort of you know just fostering relationships that although they might not have a an immediate benefit there and then to know that yeah as you say it could foster something down the line it's just telling if you know that you want to do something you know you know what you want to do sound design just tell everyone I mean just tell everyone and and you just never know who knows who yeah that's so true both yeah both for putting it out there for other purposes but also I guess the the validation of yourself saying that you're doing something and I'm wondering yeah you just mentioned that you're working on a BBC um four-part series but have things been quieter with lockdown or does that feel like quite a precarious thing for you or you know it, it feels like the momentum and the steam will kind of resume soon it's funnily enough not not that much um I think it comes with being a freelancer have been a freelancer for so long <laughs> um it comes very much with that kind of way of um yeah with a lifestyle uh when you're a freelancer you don't know when the next job is going to come in so you're very much very used to that um uncertainty you really got to be cool with uncertainty <laughs> when you're freelancing it's a combination of if I don't have much film or tv work I go back and get back in touch with my contacts in advertising and commercials so um yeah having those getting that variety and having the the, the kind of the diversity in uh, in your pool of contacts and clients and previous clients is is really important. And finally um what is a film that you've seen recently um by a woman director that you think is an undervalued gem that you'd you know like to recommend? The one thing that I think I watched recently which was directed by a woman which I loved was uh, the Lee Miller documentary on BBC by uh, Teresa Griffith. I think it was an incredible, um, yeah, incredible film. Uh, yeah, it's one of my favourite things to watch is documentaries about incredible women that we might have heard of but don't know the whole story about. And, and to, um, yeah, it's super inspirational. For sure. Yeah, I'll have to check that out because I'm a fan of Lee Miller. I've been to a few of her exhibitions but I've haven't seen that so thank you for that and thank you for speaking with me today it's been so interesting and insightful so thank you so much for your time i've loved it and uh yeah it's, i'm super grateful to be asked you know, on your podcast thank you for downloading this episode of best girl grip Please do spread the word if you liked what you heard. Leave a review, tell your friends, follow me on Twitter at StoneColdFox. That's Stone with an E, Cold with an E, and Fox with an X. Your support means a lot.
There are a whole bunch of other episodes to dig into in the archives on iTunes, Spotify and Acast. Personally, if you like this one, I recommend my chat with composer Emily Levenez farouche and music supervisor Jen Moss. In the meantime, have a good week. Mm-hmm.